Hello everyone and welcome to our Gem Pursuit. My name is Matthew Weldon and I'm joined in our magical and mysterious pursuit to the world of antique and vintage jewellery by my trusty co-host Elise Ketcher. Hello Elise. Hi everybody. This week we're speaking about an art form a lot of us probably see on a daily basis but we might not even know what it is. In fact I bet a lot of you if you check through your house you would actually find an example of this type of jewellery. You can get it in any colour and the colour is super vibrant and permanent and it never fades and it comes in all different shapes and in almost every type of jewellery you can find this example and it is of course enamelling. So enamelling, oh my gosh, what a treat we have today. Of course we're talking about dead art so in this particular series we're going to be talking about things that are a craft that actually may be in jeopardy of being lost forever and this is definitely one of them. Enameline, as you said, can be found on pretty much any metal surface that you can think of. So I'm really excited to kind of explain a little bit more about this perhaps lost art form. Super excited for this episode. Let's get started. So I suppose the first thing we really need to discuss, because there's a lot to this, because there's so many different varieties and variations of enameling, and it is also a super old art. I mean, it dates back to over 2,500 years ago, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. But there's so many variations about it. So let's let's talk a little bit about what is enameling, at least. First of all, what is enamel? So I think the first thing that we have to explain And as we're going through the dead arts, I'm really conscious that I don't want to go too technical into the art form because it can become quite boring. So like, especially if you get into the very, very technical side of it. So we want to keep it really simple so that people can understand when we're talking about, about enameling, what it actually is without you falling asleep. So first and foremost, Enameling is a form of glass work which has additives introduced to it to increase its stability and to reduce a melting range that allows it to set on top of a metal surface. So whether that is between cells of metal, so like whether that's between like two wires of metal, whether it's being actually the metal's being carved out and then it sets into those carving parts of the metal or whether it just flows over the surface of the metal. All of those fall underneath the umbrella of enameling. So it literally is a glasswork that is literally on the surface of a metal. Yes, perfect. And that really encompasses all the different varieties of it, but they all have that feature, glass onto metal, which obviously anyone who does metal work or glass work knows how difficult either of those respective fields are. And then you think of trying to fuse the two of them together makes it especially challenging and it's a really serious art form to do it well. But I think, you know, there is probably a few varieties of enameling again, you know, crushed glass. I always, it always blows my mind when I see a piece of enamel jewellery and to think that it started off as 
crushed glass that is, you know, fired and, and set into, into a piece of jewellery. But some of the different words, I think, that you'll come across in anomaly are important to have uh, a kind of general understanding. And like, kind of like you said, at least there's, it doesn't matter how it's done, whether it's a piece of wire or whether it's a piece of metal that's carved out that the enamel is set into then. They're all enameling, but it's definitely good to know some of the some of the varieties. And I suppose we'll go through a couple of them quickly. I'll take a couple if you want, and you can cherry pick your favorites and do them if you want. And actually to understand these, if you have any sort of understanding of French, which I know Elise has a couple of focal, which is Irish for a few words, but it, <laughs> it explains it explains what it is in the word, right? So let's take one example, right? Cloisonné enameling, right? Cloisonné, and I'm really trying to do my best French accent there. But Sounds a bit like Ronan O'Gara. Is that his name? Yeah, Ronan O'Gara. Ronan O'Gara, a famous Irish rugby player who has a very rural Irish accent and tried to give a speech to a bunch of French rugby players. He's the manager of the in team. French, uh, in French. In French. In French. Uh, well, <laughs> semi in French. But Cloisonné, <laughs> let's uh, look at the word itself because I think it's always important to look at the word. A cloison is is the French word for like a partition. So the way this type of enameling is done. So if I'm thinking if you're at an antiques fair, if you're in a shop, if you're at a whatever, uh, and you're looking at a piece of enamel work and you see these little partitions. So it's a flat piece of metal and they use thin wire, uh, like little metal wire strips that are fused to the flat surface and then the enamel is put into there and it's fired and it sets in there. That's a partition. So you can do lots of different partitions, lots of different colors. That's a cloisonné, so partition. That's one form of it. Another type you'll get, and this one is a bit confusing if you speak French, actually. It's called champlevé. That's when they have a piece of metal, but an area is actually, is actually carved out of the metal. So instead of fusing the little partitions on top of it, they actually carve out the metal and they put the enamel into there and then it's fired in a kiln and that causes it to set. Now, Champlevé means like a, a raised field, which is kind of actually the opposite of what this is. This is actually the, the enamel is set into it. It's actually correct in that when the enamel is put into it, it's raised above the metal and then filed down. So it does make sense in terms of describing it that way, if you're thinking about the enamel and not the metal, mm. because you're thinking about the metal, yes, the metal is recessed, not up. So it makes yeah. sense. Depending on what way you think of it, I suppose. Yeah. But, so that's that's another word that you'll come across. I think a really important one, especially, you know, one of my favorite types of jewelry, although it's not one that we deal a lot of because it's not a big one in the Irish market at the moment. There are definitely a few clients for it, but Clique azure enameling, really difficult to do in some of the finest Art Nouveau pieces. You'll find clique azure, which is basically enameling, which is set in such a way that there's a temporary backing onto it. So when after they've set the enamel, they remove this backing. And if you actually hold it up to the light, you can actually see through it. It's like completely translucent. So clique azure, which... I think in French, it allows daylight through kind of thing. So Like window, basically. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like a window, stained glass. I mean, there's other varieties of plique azure. There's Pierce plique azure, filigree plique azure. There's a Japanese style called Shotai plique azure. So there's a lot of variety in that as well. 
other types of Kumquat, Bas Tale, which again is an engraved style that they use. You won't see it as much as the other varieties. Giyosh, Giyoshe, I think, because there's an accent on the last E. Giyoshe is one where you've got engine-turned metal, and then they set the enamel on that before it's fired. It gives us this repetitive lines, geometric patterns quite often, and that was really developed when engine-turned patterns came into jewellery. A lot of the very famous enamels from the likes of Fabergé will be done with this guilloche enameling. And once you see it and you see these type of lines, and I definitely would encourage you to Google it or look on our Instagram, you'll see examples of this very beautiful type of enameling. Am I forgetting any there, Elise? There are so many more. There, yeah. there literally is so many more when you're, when you're talking about um, enameling because it really is like an experimental art, especially when you think about glasswork. So if we look at glasswork today and the amounts of different type of glasswork that is out there, it's very similar to the way in which experimentation happened with enameling and jewellery. Another great one is painted enamel, which is almost like portraiture that's done in layers on a lot of the jewellery of the Victorian period, where you can see little putti, cupids, and other kind of scenes that are created through enamel work, which have to be done in layers with the different colours, with usually a plain background. And that's really, again, a specialised art form, which is lost. So there's there's plenty more and we haven't even like touched the surface of the amount of enameling techniques that can be done, but we have pointed out the main ones that you see and will recognize straight away. Yeah, I mean, of course you could do a whole episode on nearly each one of those types, but they are a really good overview of the main types of enameling. So the question then, I suppose, leads us on to like, this was considered one of the most important art forms and, you know, jewellery obviously is art that you wear throughout up until really the, the 20th century. And then the question begs to be asked is, is why is this, uh, why have we considered this a dying or a dead art? Well, I think it's important to mention that as we as we go through all of the kind of dead arts that we've been talking about, um, the last one that we talked about was uh, lapidary, and a lot of the reasons why we lose the art forms themselves is number one in the past they may have gone out of fashion, so if something has been like overdone in a certain time period the next time period. It's almost like, you know, in the 70s, bell bottoms were in fashion. And then, you know, once you go into the 80s, bell bottoms are out, you know, and then nobody wants to wear them. And then they kind of come back around after a couple of decades and people want to wear them again. It's very similar with jewelry styles. However, because they're so specialized, those different types of art forms are so specialized. If you skip it for a generation, a lot of the times it means that they can never be done again. The art form is lost. The person who originally knew how to do it has passed away and they haven't passed on that skill because it wasn't popular during the next time period. 
So that's one thing to really think about when we're talking about these art forms is that they may have gone out of fashion and then they come back into fashion, but we can't find them anywhere. So we have to look at, at, at antique jewellery. Another reason why is because if we look at the technique specifically when it comes to enameling, it is such a difficult thing to master. There's so many different parts of this particular art that not only include like how to do it, but also the different metals that you're using and materials that you're using are not all the same. So it changes for everything, which is really a unique thing when you look at enameling. Yeah, obviously that level of knowledge takes generations. So even if you start when you're young, if you haven't picked it up from the previous generation, then you're just going to be, you're never going to get to the level. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like I've I've just written down in my notes actually, because I, when I was actually researching this, I was looking at, I remember when I had gone to the, the Fabergé exhibition in the V&A in London, and I remember seeing like a platelet, which had been kept from the Fabergé London and it had all of the different, it, it was a plate that had all of the different colors that were available in samples of enamel. And then it had all of the different patterns that you could choose for engine turning. So you could choose the engine turn pattern and then you could choose the color from the samples that they had on these on this particular sample palette that they, that was in the thing. And amazing. I was thinking, wow, that's so amazing. And in the book that I that I got from that particular exhibit, there's a quote in it that says that Har- Har- Henry Bainbridge of Fabergé, the Fabergé British agent, described the enamel workshops in Russia as research laboratories where they're aimed to find new colors. So wow. like just their enameling workshops were separate from everything else and were really like trial and error over and over and over again, trial and error research laboratories, which I thought was really interesting, especially when you see the results of Fabergé, the fact that they had specific workshops that only focused on enameling is amazing. And I think isn't that why it really is a dying or a dead art? And of course, there is very good enamelers out there, but just in that level and in that quantity and at that level of development, you just can't find that really today. And I think the, the question for me is what I was thinking as, as you were explaining that, Elise, was, you know, when the fashions change, right? Then I think the question is, why did the fashions change? You know, and, and why is the generation of enamelers kind of not been at the same levels before? And I have a theory on it. Well, I've got an actual answer for it. So I'll listen to your theory first and then I'll give you the, the answer. <laughs> oh, this, is a, this is a, well, you know, it's hard to pin it on one answer, you know, because it's a global thing. But uh, but uh, I'm looking forward to, I, I, I hope it's the same one now, now that I'm after saying this. But <laughs> this is the, I'll go with the theory anyway, right? And the theory I have is that enameling was seen as a very prestigious, beautiful art form, you know, Fabergé used it, Lalique used it, a lot of the top jewellery workshops used enameling, right? 
But then in kind of the 1950s and 60s, enameling became a really big hobbyist endeavor, right? So you could get these tabletop kilns, you could buy the powders, and you could give enameling a go. Now it was always with freeform, preformed shapes, should I say, are very basic designs. But it became so widespread, I saw that the the status and the it kind of undermined the status and the legitimacy of the really highly regarded enamelers. And that would have led a lot of them to leave the business. Coupled with that, the more and more that enameling was taught, it was taught along with metalwork, because obviously you had to be able to do metalwork to do enamel, right? So if you were doing enamel, it's fusing glass to metal. But as we said in the Fabergé workshops, for example, I mean, we we talk about Fabergé so much. We know you have an affinity to Fabergé. I have an affinity to Fabergé. You and Carl, Carl, great fella. <laughs> but they had enamel specialists who were researching, like a like it was like a you know a high end research facility. But now it's often thought as like an add on to metal work. Like oh, you have this metal now, you can also enamel that if you want. Whereas it didn't have the standalone that was required to really develop it. Like you know, in a workshop, you could have ten people who just did enameling. They're just the enamelers. Whereas now in the UK, there's an estimate of 21 to 50 trainees of enameling in the whole country. You know, whereas in one workshop, you could have the majority of that. So that's my theory. Uh, if you'd like to enlighten us on the answer, I would feel very privileged, Lise. Thank you very much. But I think there are definitely no, no, two that's factors it. to consider. No, no, there's, there is a lot of different reasons, right? There's not just one reason. Things go out of fashion, yes. But also like sometimes masters don't want to take on apprentices as well so they're like yeah like I'm happy to just do it for my lifetime I don't want to pass this skill on I don't want to have to deal with trying to train someone that's another reason why as well but talking about Fabergé um, because he their workshops were probably one of the greatest standards of enameling at their particular time Besides some of the amazing enamelers in France as well, remember most of the enameling names are in French for a reason, so you cannot discount them for their enamel work. But for this particular sake, we're going to talk about the Fabergé workshops. So at one particular point, it was thought that, oh no, it's known that Carl Fabergé's workshops had 130 colors of enamel, all right? So you could choose from 130 different color palettes that they had created. Now, that is a huge feat. If you think about the enamel colors that we see now, Matthew, they're very limited, even Mm. from the very old pieces that we have in our collection some of them from the very early Victorian period. We're looking at bold, specific colors, usually a dark blue, a light blue, a black, a white. Those are the kind Green. those are the kind of colorations that we see. 130 stable colors is crazy when you think of of that. Now a lot of those colors and a lot of the the different colors that you can see in French workshops as well, but specifically in the Fabergé workshops, were lost 
because the exact formulations of those enamels were lost when the closure of the workshops happened in 1918. Okay. So they lost all of their formulas and where they are, nobody knows. So the formulations of those particular colors are actually lost. Secondly, is that when we look at the colors of the different enamels, each of the enamels have different color, like different elements, additives that are used to make those colors, which means that each of those colors have to be fired a different way and fired for a different time for it to actually adhere to the metal. So it literally is a skill to know how to do red enamelene, a skill to know how to do black enamelene, a skill to know how to do white enamelene. And you might be good at one of those colors and you might not be good at some of the others. So again, that limits it down again to a certain set of skills. And then lastly, many of the original ingredients that you see in the enamelene on antique and vintage pieces, including Fabergé, including um, Giuliano, Castellani, Lalique. If you look at their enamel formulas, or if they take some, take some of the enameling off and they actually look at what the those ingredients are, many of the ingredients are extremely poisonous and are not allowed to be used in workshops anymore. Some of those ingredients include lead, arsenic, and sometimes even radioactive uranium. So they cannot be done ever again because the health and safety of workshops will not allow that to ever be done again. Yeah, and just to clarify, the uranium enamels that exist today, they're perfectly fine to where it's actually having the raw uranium in the workshop. In fact, even if you want to get lead done today, it's very difficult to get it done. In fact, you can't really. So... It's, uh, no, it's, it's in a, the workshop environment. Yeah. You can't actually use those materials. But if you like a very nice green piece of enamel that might have been used one of those, don't worry, it's perfectly safe. Still to come, we're going to find out where the best examples of anomaly can be seen today and you'd be surprised that you might actually find them around your own house uh, with some pretty surprising examples to give you but first an email we got on our lapidary episode uh, came from Teresa, who just said that nothing compares in terms of old jewelry and antique pieces for her it was a testimony to the skill and dedication and personal commitment of these masters and apprentices these pieces are still as special today as when they were first created and long may the podcast continue. Teresa, thank you very much for taking the time to write that email. It was a bit long in that, but it's, again, it was just referencing the time and dedication that these masters had. And if anyone else has any feedback or any views or thoughts having listened to the podcast, we would absolutely love to hear from you. And don't hesitate to send them in. You can send them to experts at courtville.ie. Okay, Matthew, let's get back to enameline. Where can we find some good examples? Well, the really cool thing about where you can find it, right, is that, as we said at the start, enameling is fusing powder glass onto metal, right? So 
it's obviously in a lot of jewelry, but it can be in other things as well. So when I was thinking where you could find it, I actually thought about where in your house can you find it? And I actually went looking around to see if I could find a piece of enamel today. Obviously, that's uh, that's what I do in my days off. Pretty much yes. anyway, I go around looking for gemstones or enamel <laughs> pieces. But I would challenge anyone listening to actually go around your house to see if you can find something that's got a bit of enameling done because I bet you'll find it. The things to look out for that you will see that could be enamel. Old cigarette cases. Like, don't forget, enameling is very popular in the Victorian, Edwardian, and even the Art Deco period. So cigarette cases, vestas can have it, boxes, all these old type of accoutrements can have it. Uh, there's another French word for you today. But the other place you might see it actually is that watch faces can also be enameled. So if you go and have a look around and you have an old pocket watch, there's a good chance that it's actually an enameled face on it. And it could be sitting in your home right there. So whereabouts would you be looking, at least if you were looking for a piece of enamel these days? Well, I'd probably be sticking away from those things. <laughs> because uh, huh? I w- usually have my head in a jewellery box somewhere trying to find treasures. So, yeah, I I guess I never thought about the everyday household items that you might find in Amelot. And now thinking about it, also the handles of like cutlery sometimes have enamel on it as well. Certain like old beauty items like tweezers and stuff like that sometimes have enameling on it as well or like uh, makeup cases um, for your compact. All of the ones from the 50s usually have some beautiful kind of enameling work on it. But the examples that I want to kind of talk about is for those who are thinking of maybe trying to find something that is jewelry related that has like the very best of the best enamel work on it. And I would say there's quite a few in different eras, but there are different techniques. So the first one that I would say is if you're looking for plique jour jewelry, the very best that I have ever seen that is plique jour is found in the Art Nouveau era. And it's because in this particular era, they really revived it and they may, they pushed themselves to the very edge of what could be achieved with plique jour. Specifically, if you look at Feliz's work, uh, a, French, uh, a French Art Nouveau artist, you'll notice like the way that the pieces come to life because of the enamel work is incredible. It looks like something from nature. And it's the same with Lalique pieces. So that would be um, the area that I would look for for Plique Jour is the Art Nouveau era. If you're looking for bright colors and you love like a number of different, uh, very bold colors all together, I would say go to the 1920s Egyptian revival pieces. They have amazing wings on scarabs and other um, Egyptian styled items that are just phenomenal. And as Matthew said in the beginning, enamel doesn't fade. So the look of these pieces, 
is really brought to life because of the colorations that you see in the enamel work, very bright and beautiful. Um, and it's usually in the cloisonne fashion that you usually find the Egyptian revival pieces. And then lastly, uh, Carlos Giuliano is probably one of the most celebrated revivalists of like uh, Etruscan revival jewelry. And his enamel work was and still is celebrated all the way from 1870s till the time of his son's death in 1914. The workmanship coupled along with the goldsmith work and the choice of gemstones in yellow gold is beyond amazing. Um, and it's there's a reason why it's such a collector's item. So if you want to go, those are the three errors that I'd really hone into if you were looking to collect a piece of enamel jewellery. Moving on to, I mean, there's so many wonderful examples and it's hard to pick one because, of course, there's so many different types of enamel. It goes through it's so, so hard. Many, oh, it's, I, I actually, you could nearly pick one for each of the different types and even yeah. that would be difficult to bring it down to just even that. But what pieces you go with, Elise? Um, you know, as I said last the, in our last episode, we don't actually talk about which piece we're picking. So I wondered if you pick the same one, but what <laughs> one did you go for as a wonderful example of enameled jewellery? Okay, so because I wanted to go with something that is super iconic and is really like when you look at this particular piece, it automatically connects to this time period and this artist so well. So it's like an undeniable piece of art. It's like, it's almost like in the jewelry world, it's like the Mona Lisa. It's one of those kind of pieces. And it's called the Dragonfly Woman Corsage Ornament. And it was created by Renee Lalique in 1903 and it's actually a part of a collection um in the and i'm gonna really butcher this for for people who are portuguese because it's a um it's a museum in portugal and it's called the golden clean sorry darns but yeah i'll i'll we'll put it we'll put a link into it for you in our show notes and then you can make fun of my um my accent but this particular museum this particular museum has quite a number of items of Rene Lalique because the original collector whom the museum is named after believed that Rene Lalique's work was so important and so beautiful And he knew that it was going to be so important for people to be able to view in the future that he collected as many pieces as he could. And he kept them in his house almost in a museum-like fashion until it was then gifted as a a museum to to Portugal. So this particular piece, the Dragonfly Woman Corsage Ornament, it 
has at the very top of where you would expect the dragonfly's head to be is the bust of a woman. And it is carved in very typical Rene Lalique fashion from a what would be considered a semi-precious stone in today's terms, chrysoprase. Um, and the the rest of the actual piece is goes down and it is created in yellow gold. And then out from the bust on either side are these two incredible lifelike dragonfly wings. If you look and you see how intricate the plicajor enameline is on this, this is like the creme de la creme in terms of plicajor enameline. It is almost cell-like in its execution. It's just magnificent. And then if you look at the stem of the body, going down in the stem of the body, we have moonstones, we have chalcedonies, we have diamonds. And the whole creation of this piece, the amount of techniques that are required to actually bring this piece to life is astounding. And it's no wonder that it has become synonymous with this time period because of not only the craftsmanship, the work, but actually how beautiful it is. It really is like looking at something otherworldly when you when you look at this piece. I just Googled it there, Elise, as we were as you were explaining, it's really incredible piece to look at. It's hard to gauge the scale of it there. It looks like it's pretty big though, but I just think to myself, the antique stealer in me is just going, God, I wonder you could pick up something like that now in a sale somewhere in in the in the west coast of France or something, you might pick it up. But it's just, it's really well worth having a look at that piece. It's just, it's incredible, really. Well, of course, I'd love to be in the west coast of France anyway, but... Um, <laughs> but if you, this is, a, this is the thing, like when you're saying that, like picking up something like this, unfortunately, it is really something that regardless of whether or not you're a jewellery connoisseur or not, if you saw this, you would automatically be like, whoa, like, what is that? It wouldn't, it doesn't matter if you have um, an expert eye and you've seen, you've handled hundreds of pieces of jewelry. This would still stand out as a really like incredible, what is it kind of moment. And it's the reason why in this particular museum, there is 180 items, but nearly half of them are actually jewellery items that were collected. Over 82, in fact, are jewellery pieces because, you know, there's something about it. Remembering as well that Rene Lalique actually only, only started creating jewellery halfway through his career. So before that, he was predominantly a glass worker and only worked with glass. So he he didn't really deal in jewellery for most of his career. And he kind of tangent into jewellery. And I'm so glad that he did. Yeah, well, yeah, we're all very lucky he made that tangent. And look, we really, if we're talking about enameling, look, as a fine example, really a Lily piece probably had to be one of them, didn't it? Like, so <laughs> yeah. thank you very much for sharing that one with us. 
So what's yours gonna be, Matthew? Well, I'm just reading my notes here and as is typical of my notes, they kind of go from top to bottom, back to the middle and then up to the top again. So I'm just trying to find start here. <laughs> but the, uh, no, but it is it is like, I suppose you couldn't not pick a Fabergé piece, could you? I mean, you had to be. There's so many. There's medieval enameling, which is really cool and well worth looking up some of the medieval enameling pieces. I had the Royal Gold Cup as one, which is one of the most early examples of the Bastille. Again, I'm probably butchering that French uh, type of enameling. But what I went for was a Fabergé piece, which is actually done by Henrik Wigstrom, who is a proud native of Tamasari in Finland. As a lot of the top uh, Fabergé workshop people were Finnish, he actually has over 100 works in the Royal Collection at the moment. So like prolific designer and came up with some beautiful enameled pieces. And the one I'm going to talk about, which I think is really important, is the, called the Colonnade Egg. C-O-L-O-N-N-A-D-E Egg, right? So done with guilloche enameling. It was actually done with the when the birth of Alexei Tsarevich, when he was born to celebrate his birth. And uh, obviously the, the story you know, of, of his life would be quite interesting. But uh, it's a temple of love and it's it's got four doves that represent the four daughters of Nicholas and Alexandra, the, the Tsar and Tsarina. It's got Alexei is Cupid on the top, right? So it's his kind of, it's a monument to him. But and it, was, it was interesting though, because this is the big question with a lot of Fabergé work is how do you identify it as Fabergé? Because... Obviously, there's got the marks, but there's so many fake marks, but you have to find the original manuscripts. And there's a new book coming out, and we're actually going to the book launch very soon. And it's called Fabergé, The Twilight Years, Drawings of Objects from the second Henrik Wigstrom album. So this is his catalogue of the different enamel pieces and other pieces that he made. Now, obviously, the book is just about to be launched, so we haven't actually seen what's in it. But the colonnade egg was one of his eggs and it has this beautiful guilloche enamel, which again is that engine turn type of enamel throughout. And it's got this beautiful colour. And I was actually thinking about how to describe this colour. As you mentioned, was it 140 colours that Fabergé had? 130. 130. Only 130. Like, that's all. But I don't even think I can name 130 colours to be honest with you. But this one is like sort of a peachy salmony color but like vibrant intensity as well so really important piece it has had a few alterations when the uh, obviously when the Romanov uh, dynasty fell it went missing for a few years and then it came back with a few alterations it did it did have a surprise as all of these eggs have a surprise but that they believe is gone missing oh the surprise yeah, surprise! I'm not here. But it's one of only four. It's one of only four eggs that also had a clock in it, which is also pretty cool. So, and it's made of bowenite, which is the which is the like the columns. So it's a temple. So these columns are made of bowenite. You've got the enamel, and obviously the four doves and and cupid there as well. So, and very interesting to see. Uh, and actually, it's in our previous episode we did in season seven where women who in- influenced the jewellery industry our episode of Alma Peel which you did at Ula Tillander she it's actually her book launch 
because she actually managed to locate Hen- Henrik Wigström's second album. And this is a super interesting piece. He was at the heart of one of the greatest enameling designers of the 19th and 20th century, probably ever, let's say. Uh, of course, there's many good ones, but they, Fabergé obviously stands out. And that piece is one of his most iconic pieces. I mean, I'm looking at it. So I've got the picture in front of me right now of the piece. And I think what really astounds us about these pieces, right, is the amount of technique that's actually used to create something like this. So when we're talking about the enameling on this, first off, on top of the egg is, as you said, a a cupid. And that has been chased and carved to represent the cupid in gold. And that sits atop the egg. And the egg is then has the guilloche, um, a salmon pink enamel around the top, which has the, the engine turning underneath it looks like a spiral, um, that's done to perfection. So, Number one, you have to be able to do the chasing of the of the cupid. You have to be able to engrave the detailing and polish it. Then you have to be able to engine turn to perfection underneath metal of the egg. Then you have to be able to match the coloration of the enamel and paint it probably in over five layers to create the coloration. And each layer has to be put in the kiln separately. Then surrounding it, we have a light blue enamel with diamond set numbers. You have to be able to have to match all of the diamonds perfectly, create the settings for the numbers with all of those diamonds in it, set all of the diamonds in it. Then you have to do the enamel work on those after that sun and kiln it again five times with five different layers. Then surrounding it, we have a carved Bowenite temple, which has been carved out of rock. So all of that has to be done and then finished and added to what's already been created on top with gold, gold wreaths that go all the way around everything. Um, this is why this uh, like this is considered a piece of art it's the reason why Fabergé eggs go for the prices that they do is because it cannot be created it is a dead art if we gave that kind of for instance I can't order that from anybody I can't ring up some workshop today and go hello I'd like a Fabergé egg please I'd like it to have a carved this and an enameled that and golden numbers and a cupid on top and a clock in the middle of it. Do you know what I mean? Like just just to add an additional craft to it, let's add a clock to it. It is actually impossible for any workshop today to actually create that. Even if we called up Van Cleef and our pals and asked them to create that, they'd say, sorry, no, we don't have an enameler or sorry, we don't work with this material or that material or we don't have a clock a watchsmith, all of those kinds of things. So this is why it's really considered like a unicorn. It's a unicorn of the jewelry industry. Yeah. I mean, and in the hypothetical non-existent situation that they said, yes, 
I think you need a hypothetical non-existent infinite bank account to even begin a project like that. So, um, <laughs> like, I don't even, I couldn't, like, I know how much, I know how much it is, you know, obviously to make just a ring like that. I don't even, I, the mind, I can't get my head around that. But, but anyway, yeah, no, two really beautiful pieces, both very different actually. And it shows you the versatility of enameling and uh, an enamel, how it can be used and why it's, it was one of the stars of art and jewellery for so long and unfortunately is a is a declining industry there are of course some great enamelers still out there but i'd love to see more two incredible pieces and we are gonna wrap up with those two so thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoyed the show remember we have notes on what we spoke about so just in case you miss anything there's links and anything else you might need in the description area of this podcast It also includes a link to our Instagram where you can also see pictures of what we're talking about. My thanks, as ever, to my trusty co-host, Elise Ketcher. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matthew. And to our podcast producer, dustpod.io. Until the next time, from me, Matthew Weldon, see you very, very soon.